Um, so yeah, so <clears throat> No Chomsky once said that uh, the pro- one of the difficulties in raising public concern over the very severe threats of global warming is that 40% of the U.S. population does not see why it is a problem since Christ is returning in a few decades. And, That'll happen. Yeah, well, okay, so I, I've heard that quote a bunch of times before, so I went and looked it up, and it's from a Pew Research poll. And it, where forty-one percent of American Christians polled believed that Christ would return by two thousand fifty, and rather than relying on you know any kind of Bible or anything like that, they're just going to go ahead and see if they can't bring about the apocalypse by burning oil, because <laughs> a piece of uh, iceberg the size of Delaware weighing a trillion tons fell into the ocean in the same week. A uh, study came out from the Union of Concerned Scientists, which just seems like a group of dudes in lab coats screaming that we're all going to die soon. But they well, said, I know one thing. We shouldn't trust unions, let's be honest. Well, what have they ever done for us? <laughs> they, they are only bad. But they said that as many as 180 U.S. locales are going to be uninhabitable by, uh, in the next 20 years because of rising seas. So... Man, let's hope these guys are right, because if they're not, <laughs> we're going to have to deal with a very different country. <laughs> okay, okay, I got, I got two things on this, two, two very short things. Number one, 180 of those 180 locales are in Florida, and Florida is alligator murder town, so that's, that's just good. And number two, we are both going directly to hell when the rapture happens. So <laughs> I mean, I mean... I think it's going to be much better to be in hell at that point than it will be to be on the frozen wasteland that will be the <laughs> third ice age going on on the planet right then. So. The actual, like, either Mad Max or Snowpiercer world of hell that we created. Oh, man. I just, <laughs> so great. Many months has come and gone since I wandered from my home In those Oklahoma hills where I was born Many a page of life has turned, many a lesson I have learned Well, I feel like in those hills I still belong Way down yonder in the Indian nation Ride my pony on the reservation In those Oklahoma hills where I was born now we're down yonder in the Indian nation. The cowboy's life is my occupation in those Oklahoma hills where I was born. I'm Adam Burnett. I'm Carl Roberts. And this is Red Star over Oklahoma. We're a small political news broadcast broadcasting about left Oklahoma and left politics in Oklahoma. Um, so this has been a, <laughs> we, we, we didn't, we didn't come on last week. Um, and we, we put up our first official episode last week. I know there were some audio difficulties and we put in the description that we'd get them fixed and lo and behold, all things go correctly. We should have gotten them fixed. I, I think I figured oh. out the problem. All praise to our producer, Mr. Burnett. I try. Um, and so, um, we we missed last week. We were both a little too hungover to record on the Sunday, uh, and uh, so we decided to postpone. Luckily, um, the two biggest news items that we'd had stocked up to do um, ended up being just right at the top of the news anyway. So uh, the very first thing we have is I have written up here uh, Donnie Jr.'s wild ride and or in the alternative, the Manchan- Manchurian candidate to Jr.'s revenge. <laughs> Another first is tragedy, then it's farce, you could say. <laughs> so, I, I mean, I- anyone who's following the news enough is, is going to be aware of kind of what's going on. Um, with two weeks ago, uh, Donald Trump Jr. put out on Twitter that a series of emails between him himself and a Russian lawyer um, where he was saying that he wanted to meet with, uh, or the, the lawyer was willing to meet with him uh, to give them some dirt on Hillary Clinton that would help the campaign. Uh, this was prior to the election, but th- that would help the campaign. And um, Donnie Jr. said, if it's what you say it is, I love it, which is what you're supposed to say when a foreign power uh, does that. But I figured this would give us a really good opportunity to kind of voice our opinions and kind of say uh, what we, you know, 
what we think about the massive Russia scandal. I mean, it's kind of dominating the news, especially uh, stateside right now. Yeah. So, yeah, one, it's 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 a bit of a thing here in Europe too. It's been a, a slow burn since there. You now there is the French election. There is the Dutch election earlier. There's a German election coming up, a federal German election in in September, I think. So it's also it's been a thing over here. You know, to what extent are Russians meddling with local local politics? And I mean, something as big a blunder as posting incriminating emails on Twitter makes it into the news because. If there's one thing Europeans, I think, like feeling like a feeling they truly love, it, it is the smugness of being smarter than their uh, across the Atlantic counterparts. And Donnie Jr. really, really did. Like he pulled out the gun, he looked down the sights and he saw it was his foot and he pulled the trigger. He, that's what he did. And then he posted a picture of the smoking gun on the Internet, which is where you're supposed to Just, put pictures of smoking guns. You know, I do have to say though, since he posted it on Twitter, like father, like son. You know, like he's. Oh yeah. He oh, figured yeah. <laughs> out that you should use Twitter inappropriately as a public figure in America. That's that's what you should be doing. We just had an earthquake in Oklahoma. Thanks, fracking. Oh great! I, I just got a news alert that told me we had an earthquake. <laughs> uh, so yeah, I I think I think it's really helpful um, when we talk about this Russia thing to kind of walk through some of the different levels that this exists on, um, both stateside and in a foreign way, because I think that that is important. I think, you know, the, the principal way that you can kind of stand and look at is that, like, the collusion... I don't want to say collusion because that's not happened yet, but uh, the, 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 the attempt by Russia to influence the uh, U.S. election, I mean, it, it, is, it is something that is diametrically opposed to the idea of American democracy. And I know that that is kind of a... You know, like a standpoint that doesn't really mean anything. I mean, when you talk about disenfranchised voters and you talk about um, the amount of people who don't vote and the amount of engaged public that does, like you're already talking about something that like it kind of isn't the way we would love to think about American democracy. But at the same time, allowing a foreign adversary to target fake news to, uh, you know, demographics that they could have only gotten with the aid of people on the U.S., it's pretty... It's pretty scary to think that that could have happened in somewhere as uh, with, with such a rich democratic tradition as the U.S. That being said, yeah. when did women get the right to vote in the U.S.? Nineteen twenty-four. One. Twenty-one. I don't remember. Sometime in the twenties. Yeah. Yeah. But Late. so I mean, I mean, it's important to it's important to both to have that 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 realism, but also to understand that, like, I mean, in any context moving forward, it's not good to allow someone who's literally our enemy. Like, like a foreign adversary to just help pick uh, the leaders. I mean, it just goes to show how yeah. much of a sham uh, federal governments are. And then you can speak more on this, but uh, uh, on, on on the uh, in Europe, there's a lot of the idea that if Russia can be so emboldened by how well their meddling worked in the U.S., that they'd be willing, they'd be much more willing to engage in that kind of meddling throughout Europe. Well, yeah, and there's also, I mean, especially here, there's there's a, a a long, a long tradition of doing it. Russia, the the general feel is that Russia is, ironically, supporting the far right, represented in Germany by by the AfD Alternative für Deutschland, and then in France by the Front National, and then that they're also supporting the far left. Uh, you know, they support the far right because the far right. You know, much like Donald Trump in America gets along with Putin and the whole we should be mean to Muslims, shit like that. Because it's also a relatively important thing for Russians um, and I think in I, Russian geopolitical interests. And they, and they support the far left, too. And so th- there's a history of it. And it's, I mean, they haven't been able to do it in America because after, during the Cold War... I mean, McCarthyism was so deep-reaching, and then until now, they haven't been in a position of power to have that kind of anyway. And we've been doing it since we set up Radio Free Europe during the Cold War. And Radio Free Europe, people don't know this, is still a thing funded, putting out news for American interests in Europe. And I mean, it's, it's, it's a great power thing that they do. You know, mm. the BBC is, is a news source that everybody has, and so there's a certain amount of like, okay, you know... We know this, but this actual like deep meddling, this kind of maybe funding people, 
or this this actual reaching out to a campaign rather than you know having a campaign reach out to you is a big deal and especially the Trump campaign with Paul Manafort who you know was literally doing this in Ukraine that was his job was fucking with Ukrainian elections um and like the, the there was some story whenever it broke during the campaign that he was doing shitty stuff in in the in Ukraine for the Russians there that he, the American ambassador to Ukraine came to him and said, I'm not asking you as an ambassador, as, as an individual or something. I'm asking you as an American to another American. You are fucking with our interests, man. Stop supporting this dude that is like the Russian candidate in Ukraine. Just stop working for him. Not like stops, not, you know, being for him personally, but stop getting paid huge sums of money illegally to get this guy elected to back Russian interests. And Paul Manafort said, Fuck you, the ambassador, essentially. I don't remember the words exactly. It was a very long time ago when that news came out. And he was one of the guys in the room with that Russian that was supposedly going to give uh, Donnie T. Jr. some dirt. Yeah, and, and I, I, one of the things you said was uh, the being mean to Muslims thing. I think, I think uh, all of right politics, and especially Russian right politics and in, in, in American uh, cons- you know, hard conservatism, is very anti-immigrant, which is strange yeah. i think in america because we're an immigrant country but it, it's, or it's mostly an immigrant country Na- native americans are still yeah mostly an immigrant country i mean we did what we could to get rid of the immigrants but that was before my time but um and and so i think i think moving on kind of back stateside with this um one of the one of the big problems i, I think we face in the u.s is that um it it, it is the this russia thing has because the I mean, you use the phrase saber rattling a lot. It, it, the, the Democrats, mm-hmm. especially in the Senate and in different places, are really putting their foot down like, man, you meddled in our election. But what this really is, it's just a return to Cold War politics. They're just saying, like, oh, Russia's bad, blah, blah, blah. Let's, you know, butt heads because they did something wrong. And they definitely did. But at the same time, that conversation becomes so loud and so all-encompassing that there's nothing else to be done. You can't move forward in a policy agenda or help marginalized and uh, uh, people who are in need uh, when all you do is either obstruct or yell about how Russia stole the election. And it also allows them to completely disregard any blame for not actually being a left party. Like the Democrats in the U.S., if they actually put out left politics and actually, uh, you know, Set, you know, moved towards a, a a more socialist agenda. I mean, you know, the the when you look at the the fight over healthcare that's going on, and you think about, man, you know, if there was actually people out there who stood up and said, you know what, we need single payer. It's more efficient. It's better. We need debt forgiveness for student loans. We need infrastructure upgrades. We need to downgrade the military industrial complex. Scale back our involvement in foreign affairs, and really focused on home and policies at home. That those are left policies that rather than engaging on those at any level, they are just saying, "Well, Russia stole the election, so we have to yell at everybody." Yeah, and it, I mean, it, it serves this like double move on the one hand because it it lets them it let it does exactly what you describe. It lets them not be in trouble for it, and it lets them also not talk about these things at the same time. So it becomes the real problem right now is not that we need to change what how we campaigned or what we stand for. And we don't need to talk about those things because we can't do American democracy with Russian involvement. So not only is it, you know, we don't have to move, but it's also you shouldn't be talking about this right now. We need to be unified to fight Russian involvement in internal politics in the United States. And that double move means that, you know, there's no space to talk about Medicare for all. There's no space to talk about maybe being hawkish as part of the issue here, you know, and and. Most importantly, everybody who is a, a very, you know, pro-Hillary person from the start and very vocally pro-Hillary doesn't have to analyze the fact that she lost to a Cheeto that is made of fascism. <laughs> like, it's, that's your problem. <laughs> like, she would have been the least, the least popular candidate in the history of American presidential candidates if she weren't running against the least popular candidate in the history of American presidential her, candidates, and she lost to him. Her approval so rating is only two points higher than DT's right now, and she's not even president. Yeah, she's not even. She's not even like unable to form coherent 
sentences when she's getting in her like she can do that really well and i mean it it's just it's so ridiculous because if you do read this this stuff like basically what happened is donny trump jr was trying to show daddy he's a big boy he turns out not a big boy. He goes to this meeting. Jared Kushner is there and Paul Manafort is there. And Paul Manafort has been working for these people in the past explicitly, and he admits it, right? And those two guys who are the actual ones with power in the campaign left room in like five or ten minutes. They yeah. were like, no, this is shit. You can't do anything for us. Yeah. So, well, and I, I, Donnie, I mean, I think it's important to not understate uh, Kushner's involvement because, I mean, they said he left the room, but one, we have no idea what they actually talked about or what their actual plans was, but if there was, I mean, the place where the rubber meets the road with this, in my opinion, is the fact that Russian hosted bots and Russian hosted Twitter accounts were able to target news on a precinct level to voters about, mm-hmm. uh, you know, Hillary Clinton possibly having Parkinson's and Hillary Clinton, da, 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 you know, all this actual, like, just false information that they were able to feed these. And the person who ran the social media and media outreach for the Trump campaign wasn't Paul Manafort. It was Jared Kushner. And so if mm-hmm. there was someone who had the ability and ha- it was literally their job to do that kind of thing, it was Jared Kushner. And he was in that room. And Paul Manafort, I mean, yeah, he's just as scaly as any of them. And he, and he was in that room probably because he knew those people. And there were other Russians and other uh, Russian-born American citizens that were in that room. I think there were a total of eight people in the room. And, mm-hmm, there were. and um, like, those interests were all represented, but the person who, I mean, in my opinion, really had the ability to affect the uh, collusion and the uh, meddling that is being so harped on is Jared Kushner, and he was there. Yeah, and Jared... It's really, it's really important, too, I think, to remember with Jared Kushner. He has always been treated, he and Ivanka have been treated as these people that might be a bit moderating and so on. But, like, the fundamental <laughs> issue with Jared cool. Kushner is that he should never, like, he shouldn't be in this position of power in the first place. He's not qualified in any sense of the word. Like, he, he was bad at real estate once, and so now he has an important White House position. Like, and no one is, no one's attacking him on this front. They're saying, oh, it was wrong, and it's like, what we should be doing instead is asking the question, why in American democracy, the guy who has no fucking experience in any fucking field related to this shit, in, in, these, in this position of power, you know, you could say that about Donald Trump, you could say that about Jared Kushner, there's a ton of people you can say that about in the White House. And I think on one level, when we talk about it, like Jared Kushner could have been doing these bad things, it's important because we need to know that. But it's also important to recognize that something's wrong with the system right now if somebody like this is in this position of power. Like, so, something's, something's gone off the track. Yeah, so, so a couple notes on that. Uh, uh, number one uh, on top, um, I'm sure you've had to sign a couple of these kind of documents, and I know I have too. Um, but an SF-86 form is the sec- how you get a security clearance to be in the White House. And Kushner has had to, and you, and you sign that document and under pain of perjury, and Kushner has had to update his four times to list an additional over a hundred contacts with Russians that he just forgot. Like that, that's, you know, if you sign a document that says this is, every, you know, this is everything I have to get a security clearance. That's one thing. I think, um, and I think that brings us to another point, which is that at the end of the day, no matter what this is, is this is a political question. You need 67 senators to remove Donnie from the office. president. Yeah. yeah, you 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 need that number, and so it is. So all this, you know, as much as there's investigating and talking about it, harping about it, like we said earlier, uh, you know, it, 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 in the same way that it allows the Democrats an opportunity to not self-analyze, it also allows the Republicans a way to create a larger disengaged body of the population by saying, like, look. Why are you even voting? Bush didn't win the popular vote. He got elected twice. Yeah, sure, Barack Obama. And both times under under questionable circumstances, more so the first and second. But yeah. that was already a thing. Yeah, and then, I mean, and then Donald Trump didn't win the popular vote, had help from a foreign adversary. I mean, I'm I'm confident enough to say that without um, you know, allegedly in front of it. Yeah. But at, at, at this point it's just 
you know, the, the faith the American people have in their voting system is so crippled that, yeah, of course, these, of course Mitch McConnell is going to stay and, and, and get reelected to his seat because the same 80 people who put him in that seat are the same 80 people who vote yeah. because no one is willing to vote. No one cares it to be feel engaged. Because like it means anything. Yeah. Well, and then also even the people, you know, because you have this split in the, the Republican Party between the never Trumpers who are going to need to talk about second when it comes to this this specific issue, I think, and, and the, the pro-Trump Republicans, then kind of, you know, it's a spectrum. Mm. Nobody is like, there are a few people firmly in both camps, but it's a spectrum. Um, and somebody like John McCain, who's very firmly in the never Trump camp, you know, was very willing whenever the Senate did away with some norms uh, not terribly long ago, uh, the the filibuster norms about the Supreme Court nominee, he was super willing to cry on camera about how he hated the fact that he was destroying Senate norms, but he was willing to do what was setting his through his agenda. And he voted for it. And he cried crocodile tears on TV. And Republicans know that. You know? If they have Donald Trump in the White House, they're going to be able to pass the legislation. And we're never going to get that 67 because Democrats aren't getting 67 seats in the Senate. That is not going to happen. And all the Republicans that act that do this performance of being anti-Trump are aware that they can, you know, make poor people starve faster through having a Republican in the White House. That's more important to them. And on a certain level, when it comes to doing politics, they they're kind of right, even though it's terrible to say they're they want to get their shit done and they're OK to be dirty doing it. Well, and and and, and like I said, I think it I think more more than anything, what it what it really can do is serve to further disassociate um, a voting population and also just, you know, disengage people and feel it, make them feel like they truly are powerless when in this democracy. Mm -hmm. I mean, the whole point of democracy is that the people are not powerless. And there's a lot of critiques to be made of democracies, but at the end of the day, it's the structure that we're in. And those are the ways that they are trying to frame and, uh, I mean, really capture the power that they are able to capture. So, and that leads right into my, uh, my next level of this, which is that federal governments are always no good, evil, big, bad structures. And that, I mean, it goes right into that. It's just that when you have that collection, when you, you know, when you're consolidating, when you allow a hundred men and women in the U.S. Senate to, through a reconciliation process, only require 51 of them to agree on a change that will affect every person in the U.S. It will affect the largest healthcare system in the world and, you know, well over a third of our economy. We let 51 people make that decision. And it just is mind-boggling. And well, and it's also, I mean... I think you're totally right on this point. And it's important to remember that the Senate was invented so that states that were doing things that were unpopular and that weren't, you know, necessarily good um, could could defend themselves against the majority. You know, like slaveholders were very heavily represented in the Senate and used the Senate as a tool to maintain slavery because popular opinion doesn't mean shit if the senator from Alaska doesn't want something to get done and it's the right kind of thing they can block it that one person from the least populous state in the union has the same power as you know one of the two senators from california and it's i mean it's just it's unrepresentative it, that's exactly what it is and that it was designed that way and the, the the framing fathers as a group of people that knew that a number of things they were into politically and thought should be the case in the country weren't going to be popular they built the Senate to defend things that they thought were necessary for running a good country, but that wouldn't be getting popular votes. And the Senate, the Senate has been doing that. So, um, do you want to move on to the healthcare? <clears throat> yeah, I think that would be. I think talking about the Senate, that's a good, good segue there, huh? It's perfect. So yeah, I have I have this one titled "The First Work of the Senate," and or in the alternative, Mitch canceled his own vacation. Um and. I mean, so we, we've we've kind of been back and forth. Um, I had a lot more um, kind of tighter writing and tighter things to say about this before uh, uh, last week, but we we we've kind of moved forward. Um, the intent of the Senate was to use uh, a reconciliation process that was not going to repeal Obamacare, but that would change Obamacare and the Affordable Care Act. Um, 
And through doing that, they wouldn't require 60 votes. Normally, when to pass a piece of legislation like that, you require 60 votes. Um, in this case, they would only require a just a majority, 51. Or, which would be really great and would lead to a lot of yelling on my account, 50 and a Mike Pence vote to break the tie. Yeah. Um, but, like, so, the what they want to do, essentially, I mean, it, and, and to really break it down, what they want to do is they want to take the Affordable Care Act, which really is, I mean, it's a very conservative bill. The last thing that happened before it passed was they added, uh, um, they added uh, uh, parts to the bill that were more conservative than anything that was in the bill already. This is not, I mean, it is socialized medicine, but it is not the way social, I mean, it's, if, if you took a piece of paper and you said, all right, let's write out how we could do socialized medicine, this isn't it. This is yeah, not this isn't it. yeah. This is not what that is. It well, is, and the, the the whole law was originally designed as a way to figure out how we could do healthcare in America without making it a, a socialized uh, system like in every other modern country. That's why the Heritage Foundation wrote the bill like this. So it's like, how can we still keep this a for-profit industry? And I'm not saying that healthcare in other industrialized nations isn't a for-profit industry. It is, but it's done in a way that for-profit happens after the delivery of, of health care to people. So, And so basically what they want to do is part of Obamacare is funded through taxes on both companies um, with uh, more um, uh, workers, which is, I mean, it's how they give most, I mean, it's how most Americans get their insurance anyways through their company, but uh, this is just kind of mandating it. It's actually, that's what it's called as a mandate. And um, the other way is through some higher taxes on things like luxuries and inheritances. And so what McConnell and the, conser and, and the Republicans in the Senate want to do is they want to get rid of all of those taxes on the rich and all of those taxes on corporations so that corporations can have more money and, you know, do more things with it, I guess. I don't know what they need to stacks and stacks of cash for. I do, but it's very bad. But... And the way they're doing that is by cutting out the funding um, for the people who are the sickest and the most vulnerable. And the way they do that is through cuts to Medicaid and to uh, Planned Parenthood. Planned Parenthood is going to be completely off the table. That is the very first cut any Republican wants to make. Um, I have uh, half of all births are covered through Medicaid and Planned Parenthood. Half. Of the births in the U.S., I, 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 you just that 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 is that is an effective population in the next year if this bill were to pass that is going to lose necessary medical coverage. The other thing is well, and this is the whole. I, I think I really want to say this about that because, like, I understand the the rhetoric used by Republicans and to some and Democrats to a large extent too about like personal responsibility, et cetera, et cetera doesn't work in cases when it comes to childcare or childbirth or something, because the baby is getting harmed by you taking care away, and that baby is not personally responsible for anything there. Like, you can't even use the rhetoric they have to explain this, and, and you can extend that not just to children or to childbirth or babies, you can extend that to people with pre-existing conditions. I have, I have a family member, you know, with celiac disease. My mom has a pre-existing condition. You know, we all have pre-existing conditions to some extent, you know? Glasses are pre-existing condition, and you know you're 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 saying these people don't deserve care for for these things that aren't their own fault, and so you can't even utilize the logic they have to, to defend this, which is really disgusting. I mean, it's disgusting. And and so in that discussion of uh, pre-existing conditions, um, that was one of the things they called it the Cruz Amendment. Uh, it was put forward by none other than our our good boy, uh, Mr. Ted Cruz's. Uh, and, neighbor to the south and uh it, basically what his amendment would allow is to say that okay we're going to let insurance companies sell insurance to people it's not really insurance and so what they would do is they would say okay well we're not gonna we're, we're not gonna we're gonna allow if you want to get your pre you got a pre-existing condition okay you you can't afford the covers pre-existing conditions policy. So we're going to let you buy a policy, but it happens with anything that we can run back to that pre-existing condition, you're done. Also, it doesn't cover a uh, hospital stay, ER, or ambulance rides, uh, or yeah. other and essential services. And so in that, it's just like, so you're forcing people who are in a socioeconomic 
area, you know, in, in a downturn area where they are not making as much money and they don't have the buying power to get the protections that they need rather than allowing the government to step in and go, hey guys, we really need to make sure that all of our population is helped and secured and able to access good medical care. What they said instead is, now let's rip them off. Let's sell them the worst insurance we can imagine. Like what's the worst thing we can do? And we'll sell that to them and then we'll make them pay for it. We'll take the little bit of money that they have rather than taxing the rich. We'll take the little bit of the money the poor have and we'll give them nothing for it. And it also, it does this thing that, that really destroys the insurance market because we already have essentially this problem in American insurance. People who can't afford insurance, they can't get treatment, uh, preventative treatment that is extremely cheaper, world's cheaper than any other kind of treatment. Um, they go to hospitals, they go to ER rooms whenever something is already too serious. They can't get denied care and prices skyrocket for everybody. And if people are buying these Ted Cruz plans, if, if this is what actually happens, it doesn't look like it will, but I mean, this the is- The CBO important. refused to score the Ted Cruz amendment because it would literally <laughs> cause the markets to shut down. It's, yeah, it's it just, totally unworkable. Like, like the market failure that exists in American healthcare today is the system that Ted Cruz says should be our healthcare policy. He essentially says, instead of how right now poor people don't pay for healthcare and just go to the ER, they should have to pay for healthcare and then also go to the ER. And then still have to pay for it out of pocket. Yeah, yeah, and then and then they have to pay for it out of pocket the same way. He's basically saying poor people aren't paying enough to not get healthcare right. Um, which is unsurprising <laughs> for the actual lizard that Ted Oh Ted Cruz has a bagpipe in place of his face and his zodiac killer it his father attempted to murder JFK, it's a lot to swallow. So one of the things, healthcare, it's kind of, when we talk about the Russia stuff, Russia is something that never impacts anyone, and it really frustrates the hell out of me because, man, it really just seems like a, you know, it, it, it's that political question. Until we have 67 senators, it doesn't matter. He can, he can write all the pardons he wants, and he can stomp his little tootsies around and, and wave his tiny little hands as mad as he wants to be. But healthcare affects people every day. When people do not get healthcare, they have to sell their homes, they have to sell their goods, they have to quit their jobs, and they end up on the street. And when you have people on the street in that way, we criminalize it, and we allow them to be preyed upon by the prison industrial complex and the, the state violence, and state violence. But it, it does nothing for moving us forward as a country. It does nothing for protecting people and allowing people to move forward and move upward. I mean, the, if there is an idea of an American dream, if there is an idea of social mobility, this hamstrings it. And that, to me, is the worst part because it actually does affect lives. And so I want to talk about a little bit how it is affecting lives, and specifically in Oklahoma. So there's a Tulsa World article this week um, about the fact that mm -hmm. the Department of Human Services in Oklahoma is, is receiving a $30 million cut. And that's a massive uh, cut. You know, we talk about sometimes, you know, there's, there's $1.2 trillion in cuts to uh, the uh, – in the uh, change in the bill in the Senate. But in Oklahoma, $30 million is an enormous cut to their budget. So we're talking about the, the cuts to DHS in Oklahoma, and I want to read a little bit from this article from the New York Times. Uh, New York Times. I want to read a little bit of this article from the Tulsa World. Um, so the, they're going to have nearly $30 million in cuts uh, to the budget of the Department of Human Services, and this result could mean nearly a thousand children and their families each month will be denied assistance for child care subsidies. Some seniors will lose up to five hours a week of home assistance with bathing, medication, and food preparation, and some developmentally, able disa developmentally disabled adults and children who live at homes will lose up to seven hours of service a week. Because we spread the cuts across all the populations we serve, we, will ab we were able to avoid total elimination of any one program, said the director of DHS. The planned cuts also include a reduction of approximately $1 per day in reimbursements to foster families and subsidy payments to families who host foster children. Um, I mean, so, so literally, this is the most affected population in Oklahoma. We're yeah. talking about disabled people, seniors, children, families of children who need help 
you know, when, when you talk about childcare subsidies, what that means is that these people are not able to afford childcare. So they're having to go to the government and say, look, I have to work. I have to keep my job to pay for the food that my family needs to eat. And, so- and, and I'm not getting enough food. I can't, I can't feed my kids. This article, I, I think I found the online version of that. The mm. 66% of the children who are getting who are getting um, like this assistance are, are living in households where both parents are working. Not where one parent is working, not where neither parents work. Both parents are working in these households. And these kids literally need governmental support because they can't eat. And both of their parents are working. Like, this is starving children. This is starving children. This is making it so that parents can't work to feed their children. You know, this is and all it does hurting. Is, our- all it does is push people down. It, it does. It, it, the idea of government is to lift people up, and and not to just cut taxes. I mean, I mean, just not to just remove government from people's lives. I mean, we've let capitalism go so unrestrained, and the pursuit of profit and the pursuit of money go so unrestrained that the people that it is affecting are, you know, those that need help. You know, it's not you know the 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 suburban housewife well, in Broken Arrow isn't being affected by this. Yeah, and it doesn't, it doesn't, you know, it, it takes government out of their lives in a way that government can be good, saying, you know, people shouldn't starve, it's the 21st century, we throw away half of our food in America, people shouldn't be hungry anymore, like, shit like that. It's taking away that government, and the government that comes in is the government, the bad, you know, the bad kinds of government that everybody essentially agrees on is, is in general, at least, like, has to be regulated well. It's police that come in and say, you know, y'all are homeless, can't be homeless, we're gonna arrest you. Or it's, you know, the, the school police that come in and take out the kid who's not getting enough food, who's getting made fun of because they don't have clothes that fit them anymore, and that gets into fight, fights in schools. It's, it's, it's making it so that the good government isn't a part of people's lives anymore and that the bad government is more likely to be involved in And that serves and these- a lot of purposes. I mean, and one of, the, one of the ones we kind of talked about earlier, one of the most important pr- things that does is that it makes people not trust their government and it makes people not be engaged. Not only does it marginalize them in that they can't eat, they can't clothe themselves, they can't hold jobs, they can't do those kind of things. It marginalizes them by saying, look, government is not made for you. It's not going to work for you. So don't try and work with it. Yeah. And, and I mean, we see all the time, like the reason Medicare is never going to get touched or Social Security or something like that. The reason that this healthcare bill is, is quasi DOA in the Senate right now is because when you have governmental programs that affect people's lives in a way that is positive and good, people fucking show up to defend it a lot of the time, especially, you know, those programs are mainly for older people and older people are more politically active in general than any other part of the population. But, you know, you have these hyper-conservative old people that want their fucking Medicare. They want their Social Security. No one is privatizing that. No one is taking it away from them. And this is part of a drive to make government look bad so that those things never get passed and people don't defend them because you can't take it away anymore. Yeah. People get used to it and, and people fucking fight tooth and nail to keep that shit. Yeah. And, and, I, and, I, and I think that that is a, a, a one of the principal reasons that uh, they are having so much trouble with the moderates and moving towards uh, doing something about Obamacare that the Republicans want. You know, the Republicans want these tax breaks, but I think that it is so difficult when they realize that if they take the insurance away from these people. I mean, you know, we we were both on Facebook quite a bit. You see all the stuff on Facebook of all the videos of people coming to offices and being like, look, I have cancer, and if you take away my health insurance, I'll die. Please no. And that, I think, is really driving some of those moderates, I mean, you know, the, the Caputos of the world, to... Uh, kind of have to debate this because yeah it's much harder to take something from someone than it is to give something to someone yeah well anyway all right let's uh (laughs) let's let's uh do you have anything more you want to say on that well i just want to say i think uh uh connecting to that you know i i said something about how it kind of takes good government out of people's lives and brings in bad government um and i think bad government in oklahoma is uh the next Really, the worst kind of government is our is our next docket item, if yeah. you will. Yeah. So we're moving on um, to yeah to Oklahoma news. 
And so, yes, so and... yeah, the biggest, the big thing in Oklahoma news, this happened a, a pair of weeks ago, but um, this is something that I think both of us have a lot to say about and a lot that we care about in this. And uh, what happened was there was a prison riot in a little Oklahoma town called Hinton, Oklahoma. And um, this prison riot occurred, um, and there were over 200 prisoners involved. Uh, there were several guards who were injured. And... Uh, this is this kind of violence is incredibly indicative of the uh prison culture in Oklahoma. Mhm. And um, and also the 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 prison itself is pretty indicative of of the the kind of political economy of prisons in the state. It's the first private prison that was ever opened up in the state of Oklahoma. And so to to give a little background, um there's a few articles I had I had pulled so that we could have some sources to 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 discuss um the kind of basis on this and and the first one I uh wanted to say is that so uh according to some reports um Oklahoma prisons have more violent incidents with guards and other inmates than almost any other prison complex in the nation um making our prisons some of the most dangerous places to be uh, in all prisons in the U.S. Uh, on top of that, Oklahoma prisons are incredibly overcrowded. We have hit a new high of 62,000 incarcerated people in the state of Oklahoma. 62,000. And I mean, it, it's already, like, America already incarcerates an insane number of people, right? America incarcerates... is. Americans make up one out of every 20 people on the planet. We incarcerate one out of every four people that are in jail on the planet. And especially in Oklahoma, I mean, it's just ridiculous how many people are in prison in the state of Oklahoma. And yeah, and the fact, and that's part of why it's so terrible because the state doesn't have funding to provide things. And, you know, we don't have the prison system to deal with the amount, with the kind of tough on crime policies that we have so often. And in, the way I and 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 so I think I think we you know we kind of have to pick this apart uh, piece by piece because it's it's a very complex issue um, and mm-hmm. one of the 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 complex pieces that you already mentioned was the tough on crime policies. Oklahoma is a uh, state that is led by Republicans and is very tough on crime and specifically in that on drug crime and domestic abuse and on uh, robbery and property crimes. Um, those kind of crimes are generally, and on the marginalized people, uh, the uh, American Indian, African American, and uh, Latino populations, or uh, Hispanic, excuse me, Hispanic populations in Oklahoma are very targeted. And, and you know, as someone who grew up in uh, Tulsa, and I've done a lot of work in some of the worst, some of the, some of the worst parts of Oklahoma City, um, when you look at where the state directs funding, uh, you go look at places like Broken Arrow, and you look at places like Edmond, and you look at places uh, like those suburbs where there's a lot of ad valorem tax money from the property taxes. And the way those taxes are organized is that where there's more money, those taxes dollars are spent more. So what you have there is good roads, good sidewalks, wide sidewalks, wide bike lanes, well-lit streets, grocery stores, and uh, good schools. And so when you look at where the um, marginalized people of color and minority uh, populations are centered. They are centered in places where there is not a lot of property tax. These are not people who are owning houses. They're mostly renting homes. And so there's a lot less money there. So their roads are worse. Their sidewalks are narrow. Their streets are unlit. And their schools are bad. And there's no place to get good food, good, healthy food. And so what you end up having happening is that these people have no choice. Well, not that they have no choice, but that they fall into these lives of crime to do what they can to support their own families and to make the, t- the difficult decisions they have to make. And then are thrown into the prisons by these tough on crime policies and then once they're in the prison their families who are on the outside have to support them and being in prison is expensive people don't really realize this as much but being in prison they don't especially in Oklahoma they don't give you socks they don't give you t-shirts they don't give you shoes they don't give you they don't give you soap they don't give you toothpaste you have to buy those things and those things cost an inordinate amount i'm talking 15 or 20 dollars for a tube of toothpaste i'm talking 7 or 8 bucks for a bar of soap i'm talking 20 dollars for a white cotton t-shirt it is 
ridiculous and they're just profiting off it. And you know what? It's really good when you can have a captive population that has to buy toothpaste from you and you get to charge whatever you want. It is dangerous. It encourages the tough on crime policies that allow these kind of things. And why would, why would the people who are making the money and lobbying the government and paying to help put the people who are supportive of pri the prison industrial complex in Oklahoma, why would they ever lobby those people to fix the prison? They want them to be overcrowded. They want to shove as many people as they can get in there so they can sell them more crap at marked up rates. Well, and also, very importantly, I mean, they get to sell these people crap at marked up rates, but the 13th, Amend the 13th Amendment allows for forced labor as a form of punishment after a crime. Um, they get what they, not only are they, they making people pay these insane amounts of money for things that, you know, do not cost this much, they're making a profit by those people being in prison because they're forcing them to work. And so not only do they have this incentive, oh, we need people in prison to buy our things or something, they need people in prison to produce the goods they then sell on the market. And so they're lobbying, like, by having a, a system of private prisons in the state of Oklahoma, by essentially saying the state of Oklahoma will not fund prisons, the state of Oklahoma instead will contract that work out to people who will fund the prisons themselves by market forces, right? What we're also saying is that the state of Oklahoma, fundamentally, to have a prison system, must also have people filling those prisons to the point where the private prison companies are making enough money to run our prison system. And... The whole point of a prison system is not that people need to be locked up to make sure, you know, that we need a certain number of people locked up. The point of a prison system is to make sure, you know, that, or at least it should be to to take people who did something bad and make sure that they can come back into society as as wholer, better adults if we're going to have one in the first place. And I, I mean, this idea that we are going to fund our prison system by profit means that we must keep people in prison. And one of the, one of the most important supporters of this, um, uh, State Representative Tim Downing, I believe it is, um, tried to keep people in those prisons after our state question 780, right? Mm -hmm. That made it a misdemeanor to possess drugs in a lot of Oklahoma because our prisons are overcrowded, was getting funded by private prisons and tried to make pass this house bill that would basically change a referendum and put way more people in prison so that these companies can still make money. And these companies that are making the money are the ones that are running the prison so terribly that they're the second most dangerous in the country. So they're not even living up to their end of the standard. People should not be getting hurt in prison ever. And these private companies are trying to get more people put into these prisons where they're very likely to be injured, where they're like, Riot because they're not getting their basic needs met, and, not only, and then we're saying that's how it should. And we not, should put more people there. And not only that, but they're they're feeding into a system that that it the entire end goal is that is to put them in prison and to keep them there for longer. They want those prisons to be overcrowded because guess what? It breeds violence. And if a, if you know if you deny someone food and basic toiletries, eventually they're going to strike out and say, "I need." the things I need to survive. And eventually, and through, you know, low education standards provided through the state and through uh, a, violent, a violent response, or, you know, a violent response to a violent stimuli from the state, they're going to respond violently and then they're just going to have a hammer swung at them. You know, they're just going to be like, all right, cool, you had a three-year nonviolent crime sentence for uh, having drug paraphernalia or or having drugs, and okay, now you've pushed a guard, now you've got eight years, all right, in that eight years, uh, you had to defend yourself from a, a, another inmate, all right, you've got another 20 years, now you're just here. It's, it's, it's yeah. literally the Shawshank Redemption. It's literally well, just conscribing people to work, and I mean, I, you know, and, and it, our Oklahoma listeners, you, you guys, I mean, I, I, I drive to Tulsa every day, and I can, I mean, they use the the work crews to pick up trash on the side of the road and i see them every day and i mean you know that's not necessarily making the money but those prisons they produce goods and they produce goods that uh those prisons then go out and sell and i mean one of the guys in one of one of the articles we pulled from news okay on 
28th of December last year, uh, mm -hmm. one of the guys representing prison workers, because this is something that we also need to talk about, you know, we care about workers and people that work in prison are still workers to mm -hmm. some extent, right? Um, he described, to quote, he says, we know that we've truly become just the warehouse for inmates in Oklahoma. We don't really offer any programs. Uh, we don't offer them any programs to rehabilitate them. We barely <laughs> staff our facilities. Our facilities are crumbling and falling apart. And, you know, the people that work there suffer from this violence, right? The work, like we said about that riot in Hinton, the guards also got seriously injured. And mm -hmm. no matter what, people should not be getting injured at their job. Like, we have OSHA for a fucking reason. And one of those laws should be there shouldn't be riots where you work because people are starving. So the prisoners are put in danger. And like you said, it's perfect for the, the board members who... For the same reason, get to treat the prison workers like shit. Because if they treat the prison workers like shit, they barely staff the prisons, the people riot, they have to stay in prison longer, they have to pay less people. And if they don't, you know, keep up their facilities and shit, they just have more excuse to make money here. And those people never face the danger of a prison riot. Those people probably never go to the fucking prisons. They probably don't know where they are. Just They're lawyers. The yeah, and, and not only that, but, you know, you put those guards in those situations, and, and like I said, you know, you're going to have a violent re response to a violent stimuli, and binding someone in a jail cell is violence. I mean, they, you know... It's super violent. It, it, it is, it, you know, the, the entire definition of the crime of kidnapping is not letting someone leave. If, if you tell me, Adam, I'm walking out of this door, and I go, uh-uh, I've kidnapped you. That's it. That is a violent crime, and you know we act like, oh well, they're prisoners, and you know, they've done something to deserve it. And you know what? In some cases, there are goals that prisons have. You know, rehabilitation, the um, removal from society of people who are, you know, violent repeat criminals. You know, those kind of things. Uh, uh, you can at least have a discussion about. But when you're just you're creating a system where people have to you know, look extra legally. I mean, it goes back even to the stuff we said about, you know, uh, Medicare, when you, in the DHS cuts, you know, when you have a family who can't make the money to feed their kids and they don't have anywhere to put their kids, all right, eventually they're going to see the great, great, the great, great money um, opportunities in selling drugs, in selling, you know, with the massive opium problem that exists not just in all of the U.S. right now, but in Oklahoma. You know, we've so overprescribed opioids that we have a massive heroin addiction, and these prescription pills are easy to get on the street, and they're easy to sell. And so what ends up happening is that you've got people who see that the only way they're going to be able to make the money to um, support their families and their kids is to rob, steal, and sell illegal things, and then they get thrown in the prisons where they're hit with violence over violence over violence, and eventually that's going to necessitate a violent response. What is it from Westworld? These violent delights have violent ends? Yeah, something like that. Yeah. And it's, I mean, it's only natural, you know? It's the exact same thing. You know, it, they, if you're not, if you're forcing people to be somewhere, if they can't leave, and you know, people got to eat, people got to take care of themselves. And we put them in these positions and it's what they do. Yeah. And it's, I mean, it's, it's really disgusting. It's one of the grossest things about the state of Oklahoma is our prison system, I think. Yeah. Well, let's, uh, let's move on to a little bit of hopeful news. We're getting towards the end here. So, uh, let's, let's, uh, move on to a little bit of, we're going to just go through this pretty quickly, but, um, some really good, um, some really, I mean, not really good news. Like we've, we've already voiced some of our complaints about the, uh, Democratic Party Democrats. in uh, Oklahoma. But there were two special elections held recently in both of those seats. One was a pretty contentious Oklahoma City seat, and the other was a Tulsa seat that was in a red district that was held by uh, Representative Dan Kirby, who got in trouble for, man, I don't want to misstate this. It wasn't, it wasn't pedophilia. What was it? Uh, he was sleeping with... Um, was he the one... Was I it, can't remember if he's the, the one that was sleeping with the underage male prostitute doing meth or if he was the one that was just cheating on his wife with somebody in the office um, which also i don't i don't mean to make that less i like, like yeah yeah that like was sexual harassment are, in the workplace yeah those, that, that's not okay um well 
Uh, I can't find it right now, but yeah, he had, he had, Dan Dan Kirby had left office uh, early, and then there was another special election, and those those seats were swept by uh, Democrats, um, which is very good because it allows um, it allows us to you know have some hope, I guess, uh, for a little bit because what what uh, what really pushed that move towards. Um, uh, Democrats being elected is that there are one of the the woman who was elected in um, uh, the Tulsa seat was actually a teacher and and um, a big push by that is that the teachers uh, in Oklahoma are really starting to push back and there has been a lot of response from teachers unions they've run some ads in the Tulsa world they've also ran some articles in the Tulsa world recently about uh, teachers preparing to run for the legislature because basically. And they, uh, uh... A lot of them run in, ran in 2016 already, um, but mm-hmm. yeah, yeah, explain why. Yeah. Uh, but I mean, basically, it has just gotten to a point now where education in Oklahoma is so underfunded and so undervalued that the only way anyone thinks they're going to move forward on those issues is to put teachers in office. And yeah, I don't and, disagree. Um, I, 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 think that, I think that that is actually, I, I like the idea of people with experience <laughs> moving in to uh, help deal with governance. But at, at the same time, I think that it speaks to the depth of the problem, where literally people are stepping out of their jobs to go to government because they are being so taken advantage of. Well, and it's, I mean, I have, I'm good friends with uh, some of my teachers from high school. One of them is actually running. He's, he's already announced his campaign for 2018. Really cool. John Waldron, vote for him. He's, he's great if you live in his district, just outside of it. Um, but a lot of them are really considering moving. And one of them has actually said, they, they said, you know, if depending on how the election 2016 goes, I'm going to move out of the state of Oklahoma. And the election happened in 2016 and she's not moving tomorrow or something, but she's going to move in the future. That yeah. is in the cards. She's, she's from Oklahoma. She grew up here and she's a teacher and she can't, she can't afford to really live on, on the payment she's getting. Her husband's a teacher and she's spent her, her whole career trying to help kids in this state and we can't keep them in the state uh the man who won oklahoma's teacher of the year award took a job in texas yes because texas pays teachers well yeah and you know well i mean not even well but just they 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 pay them comparatively yeah there's just like it's a little bit closer to a living wage um all right do you want to move on to your conservative reading list for the week uh yeah i would love to move on to this because this is one of the most hateful one of the my, so my my I'm going to tell you right now my computer is being weird so you're gonna have to you're gonna you're I'm just gonna this one's all on you you're just gonna tell me about it. Okay, so this uh, News OK editorial board published this article uh, called "Maine Shows the Folly of Tax Rich Schemes" on July 10th, 2017. It's really ironic that they picked Maine because we can see the folly of not taxing the rich. If you just drive across the fucking border to Kansas and you'd be like, "Why is everything on fire?" Oh. They have even less money in their government than we do because they stop taxing rich people. And they're, all they're basically saying is that rich people that live somewhere are, uh, are just shitty because what they do is they move their money out of the state they live in. So they avoid paying higher taxes. And so they're saying, well, you can't do it because rich people refuse to help their communities. Um, and so they're, like, they're basically saying, oh, you know what? We should learn from that, that we're fucked. And it's like, <laughs> okay. Maybe we could tax rich people's property taxes. You know, anyone who's been driving around Tulsa neighborhoods between 21st and 31st and between Peoria and Lewis knows that there are houses there that are worth more money than either of us will see combined in our own mm-hmm. life. Raise property taxes, you get some tax revenue. And, I mean, they just say this shit. And it's like, how are you going to say this in a state that has a massive budget hold that can't fund things like keeping teachers in the state, like the health services that people need, like putting people in prisons that are you know, meet the Eighth Amendment constitutional requirement of not being cruel and unusual because these people can't fucking eat in these places. And, you know, they say this at the very end of it, they say there's one reason why many politicians who call for taxing the rich quickly vote to tax everyone. As was the case in Kansas, income tax increases were imposed on people of all income levels. And I say, fuck yes, let's take Kansas as an example. Let's tax people higher, and let's make sure that people in the state of Oklahoma aren't starving anymore, that people in the state of Oklahoma are getting the education they need, and that people in our prisons don't have to riot to make sure they don't die whenever they're being held in the state. Yeah. Yeah. It's just, 
basic human rights at a certain point. Um, yeah. You know, when, when you're when you're seeing a budget shortfall the way we are, it's just impossible to imagine that the answer is uh, tax the people with the most money less. Yeah, it's just you know they got the money tax. Let's tax somebody. Somebody somebody's got to pay for this shit because you know stuff that's missing in Oklahoma is not fancy programs. It's paying people's bills that have to do work in the state. Mm-hmm. All right. Well, I think that's going to be about it for us this week. Um, thank you everybody for listening. And uh, as usual, um, you know, if you're an Oklahoma, as we'd like to say, uh, hit us up. Let us know what you'd like to hear about, or uh, let us know if you have any questions, comments, or concerns. Um, go give us a. Uh, do we have a Twitter account yet? Uh, no, I'll I'll get that set up this week. I know we have. It'll a, be... we, we've got we've got a uh, Reddit subreddit. It's just uh r red star over Oklahoma. Um, we have a SoundCloud page that we are tentatively using. Um, uh, these these uh do come out through iTunes. Um, but we're looking at a couple other hosting sites for the time being. And and like we've said before, if you're a if you're an Oklahoman or a friend of ours, you know, give us a shout. Uh, let us know what you think about the podcast. Uh, and let us know if there's any content you'd like to add or or uh, be a part of. Uh, this is uh, something that we're trying out and trying to do, and and we're 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 both having a good time talking about uh, politics in Oklahoma. And we'd love to talk with you about it too. All right, thank you guys so much. Cheers. Bye. All right.